Tales from the Plantation Nation. Fresh. I look around for my mother and my little sister. What happened to my brother? Some motherfuckers killed him. Damn, my head spinning and I'm sick to my stomach. Everything is pitch black and I can't see nothing. Everything was pitch black except the motherfuckers coming. I didn't mean to let them catch me. I was looking for my brother. All I know is that I feel an arm. Could be a foot, but a brother couldn't speak because his tongue they took. I was shook when I saw that fetus fall from the womb. But they came in the name of Jesus. Man, I'm confused. We was fooled. Our village was burnt in all our tools. And now I'm probably on this cruise. And a nigga shark food if I can't make it. Where the fuck's my destination? To the land of milk and honey, but I'm naked and I'm hated and Satan told me speak another language. Damn, it's fucked up on this slave ship. There's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. I look around for my mother and my little sister. What happened to my brother? Some motherfuckers killed him. Damn, my head's spinning and I'm sick to my stomach. Everything pitch black and I can't see nothing. Coming down off this black rabbit, think about jumping. The big homie threw a meeting, but he ain't talking about nothing. All I know is that he got an L. Could be a rock, so he don't see it like they see it when they come to them cops. But some shit that I ain't about to stop. So they MIA, where they at working hard down in PIA private prisons make millions worth of CCA brunt making like a dollar a day man when count time time and your ass move then you ain't dead it's a toilet by my bed I said if count time come if your ass move then you ain't dead bro it's a toilet by my bed it's a dead body next to me it's a dead body next to me it's fucked up on this slave ship it's a dead body next to me it's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. Everybody, to Tales from the Plantation Nation. I'm your host, Samuel Nathaniel Brown. And if this is your first time, thank you for joining us. And if you're a returning uh, listener, thank you for coming back. That opening track, that was uh, Sarah Fresh on New Nubian Music called Slave Ship. And it, it talks about the correlation between the modern day plantation and, and the slave ship. And you know, you hear Sarah Fresh saying it's fucked up on the slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. And oftentimes, that's what it's like. You know, that's what it's like oftentimes walking through those yards because many times people, they, they walk, they're like the walking dead. They're like zombies, and it's unfortunate. 
some of them, you know, their lights get turned on, some of their lights don't seem never going to come on. So it is fucked up on the slave ship. Welcome, y'all, to Tales from the Plantation once again, though. This is episode four, season one. I'm your host, Sam Brown. And today we're going to take a turn slightly different from what we talked about last last week. Last week, if you weren't here, we spoke with Davon Woodley, and we also spoke with um, Eli, King Eli. And so Davon and myself were formerly incarcerated, and Eli was in the process of turning himself in to serve a bid. Hey, somebody, can somebody hit mute? One of y'all need to hit mute. It's a lot of feedback. Please, and thank you. And so, um, yeah, we spoke with King Eli, and we spoke with Davon about, you know, what to expect upon entering into the carceral system. And it was important to have that conversation, especially in this format, because it's not one that typically takes place amongst uh, black males or young males or older males and younger males or, or definitely in a public setting. So that dynamic in and of itself was so interesting to have two guys. Like I served 24 years off a life sentence. Davon, I believe, he served like five or seven years. And and um, Eli is on his way in to serve two years. And so to have our combined experience with, you know, what it's like traversing those treacherous waters of the United States carceral system and be able to give that to him meant a lot because it wasn't just for Eli, but for everybody who was listening, every mother, every every father, every uncle, every sister, brother, everyone that's about to go through it or is going through it or has someone that's going through it. We need to have these type of conversations because until we can break this system down and stop it from feasting on our communities, we really have to talk about it. Like one of the things we discussed is prison system, now the modern-day rite of passage for people when in, in the ghetto, you know, do does a because a man. I was told that to be born a male is to be born a, a physical birth. To be born a man is to have a psychological birth. And unfortunately, there's too many young black males and Hispanic males and and other males of color having to undergo that psychological process of becoming the man inside of a prison. And we have the ability to stop that. We really do. And it takes us focusing on the, the legislation. It takes us really having an open mind and taking the time to reconsider and reassess what we were socializing to believing about people who commit crimes or who are accused of committing crimes and how we deal with them. Because we have these archaic laws on the books that have been here since before our great-grandparents were even around, and they're still on the books. And they, 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 they have no place in today's society, period. Many of them are rooted in, in white supremacy. Uh, many of them come from a time when black people were seen as less than human beings. And these are the same laws that are still on the books, hence the, the 13th Amendment, or Article 1, Section 6 of the California Constitution, involuntary servitude and slavery and Laws like this that just shouldn't be there. So we have to have new laws or new amendments, like my big brother Max Parker said today, uh, a 28th Amendment, 
we have to have new laws and new amendments in order to correct these um, historical wrongs that are inherently a part of our, our governing documents and institutions, such as the Constitution. So what we're talking about today is what it's like going into the carceral settings as a youth offender. And that's a term that is fairly new because once upon a time, people who were under the age of 18 weren't seen as youth offenders. They were just simply tried as adults. And that's, that was, that's, has been, that's what has been part of the problem, not the problem, just part of the problem. But today we have with us Victor Forte and Jose Zapata, both of which are youth offenders or were youth offenders and served a considerable amount of time inside the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Each had two different journeys, but ultimately those journeys led them to being here outside of prison once again and able to share their narratives and their story with you. And so we want to talk about what it's like, you know, being someone um, under the age of 18, treated like an adult, and sentenced to be around adults. What is that like? You know, and what type of impact does that have on a person, on, on a, a person's psyche? And what was that person's psyche like prior to going to the prison system? And did they take that into consideration when they sentenced him as an adult? We would like to talk about these things because all of this is relevant. Because what we always need to remember is prisoners are people. Some people don't like to hear that. They were like, well, they committed a crime. They harmed somebody. That's true. J. Cole has a line that I love. He says, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. So I'll say that again. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. No one is incorrigible. And so when we have an opportunity to help people correct their behavior and understand what led them to adopting criminality, then it's incumbent upon us to take it as a society. And what better place than prison? After all, that's what they claim is doing. So enough about me running my mouth, y'all. I want to introduce y'all to Victor Forte, our first guest. Um, Big Vic, he served a considerable amount of time in prison. I'll let him tell you himself. I walked the yard with Victor. I've seen a, a great deal of, of man, it's like from, from tragedy to triumph. If I had to tell this story, to borrow my brother Moody's words, it's a story that started in tragedy but ends in triumph. And so it's really an honor to have you here today, Big Vic, because Thank you. your story is, is, is one that's just so powerful um, that you can't help but to touch lives and save lives. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, I'd like so, to begin with the state yeah, of where Forte. Um, I'm an individual that served uh, 31 years inside the prison system, level four, all level four. Went in as a juvenile offender I uh, with a 40 life. Part of life sentence. Let me ask you something, Vic. Let me ask you something. I want to jump in. So when you say you served 31 years all on a level four, for people who don't know what that means, because you have to remember we're speaking to an audience that is not only people, you know, consists of not only people who've been to prison or had loved ones in prison, but some people who've never had a loved one in prison and never been to prison. Hmm. 
So when you say 31 years on a level four, what does that mean? Maximum security. The highest level that it can be of uh, violent offenders. That's where they send most of us at. They, they send, that's where they send most of us when we first come inside the prison system because we're a category by a point level. And at that point level, you know, you're, you're considered to be the most dangerous of all. And you go with the most dangerous that gets inside the institution. Mm. Does that kind of explain what I'm saying to you or you, you, the audience? 100%. Thank you for that. So I would like to go into the stages of being uh, tried as a adult at the age of 16 for double homicide, gang-related, uh, four attempted murders. That time in my life, um, I was heavily uh, active in the gang lifestyle, very confused about a lot of different things that was taking place in my life. Um, and they led me to the streets looking for love and acceptance. Mm. But as I reached the stages of building a reputation in the street and doing the things that, you know, average gang members do or think that, you know, it's cool to fit in with everybody, um, I landed in front of a I landed myself in front of a devil homicide four attempts on a rival gang. And I never realized and recognized how serious that that was because, you know, I was just a kid doing the things that, you know, average teenagers do in the, in the streets as a gang member coming from a home of, of, of very dysfunctional drugs, you know, abuse, so on and so forth. That took me to a stage in my life to where, um, I was tried as an adult, and I was sent, I was found guilty, and I was sent to Pelican Bay State Prison, and it's the worst of the worst. At what age? At the age of, I, I turned 17. As soon as I turned 17, I was set, I was sent to Pelican Bay State Prison, where they had uh, a role in the prison, in a building for just juvenile offenders, you know, until we turned wow. 18 to be able to uh, go out and program with the rest of the adults and so on and so forth. And, and what year was this, Vic? That was in 1988. 1988. I heard you mention, like, you know, a lot of stuff taking place in the household. Are you familiar with ACES, Adverse Childhood Experiences? Not really. Not really. So Adverse, uh, adverse Childhood Experiences are traumatic events that took place in your life prior to the age of 18, from emotional neglect to physical abuse to um, to seeing, you know, tragic events take place amongst family members, homicides, abandonment of a family, of a, of a parent. Yes. Each one of those are considered, you know, a, a sexual abuse. Each one of those are considered a point on an average childhood experiences score. It was a, a test that was created by doctors Anda and Felitti back in like mm-hmm. 1988 in San Diego. They were conducting a, a test on obesity. They were running an obesity clinic, and they were trying to understand what all of their patients had in common. So they created this this survey, and they began measuring, you know, the, the traumatic events that took place in people's lives and being able to correlate it to eating disorders. And mm-hmm. so since that time. Adverse childhood experiences have been, you know, the ACES survey has served as like the catalyst for a great mm-hmm. deal of other studies. 
and it's, it's, it's also at the core of the theory of emotional illiteracy-based criminality and <clears throat> positive to be the reason why people adopt criminality as a coping mechanism is for unprocessed <clears throat> traumas. <clears throat> and so I said all that to say, listening to what you said about being a, a you know, finding yourself 16 years old with, charged with two homicides and four attempted murders, uh, did anyone take into consideration like what you were going through in your household and, or any of the traumatic events that you experienced at that time? No, that was never even uh, considered. The system, you know, we were just shuffled from one place to the next. Once you're uh, uh, arrested, you know, you're you're basically considered as a criminal. And and how they look at us and deem us in our communities is that, you know, they're just they're just lost causes, and we're just going to shuffle them off and send them on to the to the next stage of uh, what I call it the concentration camps, from juvenile hall to YAs to the prison system. And that's the stages of where, you know, it is it, at with even today with our communities, you know, where they're changing, exchanging the adults that's in the prison system for the younger generation and coming in and they're not giving them life sentences no more. They're giving them almost a hundred and something years to sit there. And there is no hope. You know, because you don't have to go to the board. You just have to sit there and do the time. That is the same. Oh, yeah, that's not a life sentence. That's mm-hmm. not a life sentence. That's a death sentence. That's the death sentence. But that's the new way of processing the new Jim Crow era and the way the stages of things are in the system. You know, we're, we're, we'll, we'll work it in a way to where we won't make it look it feel so bad or even give them a chance to ever get back out of prison by going to the prison, a state of prison board. Um, get released after a period of time you know we're 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 fortunate to come through because it was guys that was in way before us that you know every time you know they were sitting in prison they had to sit their stages and and deny you know there was no such thing as getting out of prison in the 78 79 and you know on down those guys and there's still some guys in there with some old prison numbers a numbers b numbers and still fighting for their life to get out of prison you know to change and they have changed, yeah. you know, but, you know, the way the prison system is set is that if you commit a crime, you're convicted of a crime, you're going to do the time for that time, that crime, no matter what. Well, it's, it's important to me. Thank you for that. It's important to me to, to really raise awareness around, like, some of the things that, and I, I only want you to talk about what you're comfortable talking about as far as, you know, your yes, upbringing or with that said, um, it's important to me to highlight for our listeners, though, and anybody that's, you know, tuned in, the fact that none of us are born bad, none of us are born evil. Again, people adopt criminality as a coping mechanism for unprocessed traumas. I can't tell you how many dudes we met that was, that was that's a blood or a crip or a surrounding or, or, you know, a Nathaniel or something just because they didn't have a daddy to throw play, play, foot, play catch with. Mm-hmm. They didn't have somebody to throw football with. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Or because somebody was in their house calling them, you know, out their name and they, they found refuge or solace with the people that look like them or sound like them or was being made fun like them at the park. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 truly, I truly believe this, Sam, is that, you know, the stages of what I went through in my life and experienced as a kid, even with my mother, um, you know, um, bringing me into the world, you know, the embarrassment of having a father in my life that was gay and, and my mother 
um, kind of struggled with, you know, the levels to try to explain to her, her parents, you know, what was going on. And she hit the pregnancy and to the point to where, you know, she had me and almost, uh, you know, felt in her mind the best way for my child to survive or whatever is that I'm flushing down the toilet. You know, this, mm. this is the way that women thought at that time of, of homosexual activity or so on and so forth, that it was a form to, uh, especially in the black community, that it was some kind of mental illness. So it was a lot of different stages and phases that my mother went through, as well as, you know, coming from a family that was very poor, very dysfunctional. Everything was, you know, resolved with violence. And as I came up around that, you know, um, I I kind of adapted it. And, and, and I kind of accepted the core. It was that it was normal. Of course. That's one of the things they talk about at the Board of Parole hearings when they're assessing you, well, you know, they say, well, you in an environment that you cannot easily extract yourself from, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they, say, they, they supposedly assess that as a mitigating factor because as a child, you don't have the ability to t- take root and just move. You, you can't provide for yourself. You don't pay rent. You understand when you're not, provide, you're not purchasing your food. And so mm-hmm. you're dependent upon the adults around you. And as right. such, you're susceptible to their behavior. And that's right. unfortunately the way it is. And mm-hmm. we have a criminal justice system that does not take into consideration what takes place or what happens to, to children or to youth or to people that causes them to develop a propensity to adopt criminal behavior. And right. that's why it's important to have legislation like SB 261 and SB 260 that now comes back and tries to, to correct, to correct mm-hmm. those oversights. Because we right. all know Studies have shown that the prefrontal lobe of the human brain is not done forming until a person is 26 years old. So to take someone like you that has been through so much trauma, you know, and we can talk about epigenetics and and changes of the molecular level and transgenerational trauma. We can get into all of that. But to take someone like you and not even consider any of that and then try you as an adult, knowing that your brain is not fully formed, and then multiply mm-hmm. you times a million. We're doing this all across the nation. Mm-hmm. It's a and, you know, we reach, we reach a, you know, a stage in in our communities, you know, black and brown communities that, you know, um, if you do or you commit a crime or you do something wrong, um, you know the difference between right and wrong. And so be whatever you was going through before you did what you did. Um it's just the level of what the state of California or whatever state is giving you is saying, you know, where you committed a crime, you're going to get time. Well, that's, that's actually an inherent part of, of um, Western jurisprudence. It's called free will. And mm-hmm. it, it holds that anything that a person does, that they, they, you know, autonomously made that decision and therefore with all celerity or with, with no with, with all haste, um, they're going to make haste to punish you because you had the yeah. freedom of choice and you chose to do it. And what that does is that assizes the collective conscience of society as a contributing factor or influence upon that individual. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. that's why it doesn't resonate with your soul because you know it's false. They try to make it seem like, oh, this person just woke up bad or they just got, you know, was born bad. And that's not true. It's systemic oppression and racism and a host of other factors that contribute to people turning out the way they turn out. 
Yes. I totally agree with you on that. So with that, I want to get ready to bring Jose in here. We're going to continue this conversation. Um, Sir. So I'm so happy to have you here, Big Vic. Like I said, your story is so powerful. You barely even scratch the surface, and you're going to heal and help save so many lives. So thank you for coming on with Tales from the Plantation Nation today. Um, we're going to come right back after this. This is These Are the Facts. My girl, Tanya Mack, no spin, no blend, no putting nothing in. Straight numbers, baby. Hello, my name is Tanya Mack. I am your sister, I'm your homegirl, and I'm your friend. And these are the facts. According to a 2016 report by the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, formerly incarcerated individuals are almost 50% more likely to become entrepreneurs than the general population. According to a 2020 report by the National Bureau of Economic Research, 9.2% of black business owners in the United States have a history of incarceration, and that's compared to 3.3% of white business owners. According to a 2020 report by the Brookings Institution, having a criminal record reduces the likelihood of becoming an entrepreneur by 50%. A 2019 report by the Prison Policy Initiative found that formerly incarcerated individuals face significant barriers to accessing um, financial services, including investing and investors. Data on this topic is not readily available. And when I say data, I mean um, the percentage of formerly incarcerated individuals who receive venture capital funding. But according to a 2018 report by the Center of American Progress, they found, and this is not surprising, that formerly incarcerated individuals face significant barriers to accessing any type of funding for small businesses and small business creation. According to a 2019 report by the FDIC, 25.4% of formerly incarcerated individuals are unbanked, and an additional 28.4% are underbanked. And we're going to get into that, the definition, what's the difference between unbanked and underbanked. According to a 2019 report by the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, Formerly incarcerated individuals who start their own businesses are less likely to return to prison than those who do not. The impact of access to capital on entrepreneurship among formerly incarcerated individuals is surprising. According to a 2018 report by the Center for American Progress, Increasing access to capital for formerly incarcerated individuals significantly increases their rates of entrepreneurship and contributes to economic growth. According to a report by the California Association of Realtors, as of 2020, the home ownership rate for black households in California was 35%, compared to 60% for white households. According to data from the Census Bureau, as of 2020, the home ownership rate for black households in the United States was 44%, compared to 74% for 
for white households. This disparity in home ownership rates contributes to wealth inequality and also limits opportunities for black families to build generational wealth through home ownership. According to a report by the National Association of Realtors, as of 2020, the home ownership rate for black households in Georgia was 42% compared to 73% for white households. In Texas, the data is staggering. In Texas, for black households, home ownership rate was 41% compared to 66% for white households. According to a report by the National Association of Realtors as of 2020, the home ownership rate for black households in Louisiana was 38% compared to 72% for white households. The report further notes that systemic barriers to home ownership, such as discrimination in lending and housing policies, have directly contributed to the gap in the home ownership rate. These have been the facts. No spin, no blend, put nothing in. Strictly the facts. Strictly facts, baby. Strictly facts. Thank you, Tanya Mack. Shout out to Universal Cafe. These are the facts. No spin, no blend, no putting nothing in. So those are the numbers, y'all. And those numbers are often changed sometimes. Uh, Big Big. Yes, sir. Did you hear anything that Tanya Max stated in those numbers that stood out to you or caught your ear? It's a lot of what she said that caught my ear pertaining to just basically the facts of what our numbers are in the prison system now to a point to where the system is overcrowded and the stages of where our government has come to a term to understand that we have to let them out. No matter what, we're spending too much money taking care of them inside the prison system. So that is something that caught my eye um, tremendously. Well, you know, it's always interesting to hear the critics who have a problem with, you know, abolitionists, who have people that have a problem with prison abolition and people that have a problem with criminal justice reform. The number one song that they always sing is, oh, they're going to let out these rapists and these murderers and these terrorists and these gangbangers. And it's never like that, ever. <laughs> it's never like that. So um, she did say a lot about the challenges that people face, you know, upon their release and how there are not many opportunities, well, how more people get out of prison in terms of self-entrepreneurship than, than you, you, you know, you would anticipate. So that was mm-hmm. nice to see in here. But she said there are yeah. not many small business loan opportunities for people who are formerly incarcerated. Mm-hmm. I think that's wow. wrong because people in prison have a lot of time to think. Mm. Well, I, I believe that. I, I believe that in the terms of where even with me right now in the stages where I'm at right now um, with my life and understanding how to get myself in a position to where I'm able to take care of myself in so many different ways, you know, but at the same time, I've done majority of my life inside the prison system. I never worked a job on the outside. I sold drugs. Um, I hustled, you know, I robbed people and so on and so forth. So 
a lot of things that I learned and adapted inside the prison system. I worked jobs in the prison system that can never compare to what you have to do in a job out here. And even trying to understand what a resume is and how to talk a resume and break your, uh, the stages of where you have been at all this time, you know, why you don't have a history of working is a door can be closed in your face. And most of the things that's given to us that comes out that we, when we come out of prison are warehouse jobs and stuff like that. Basically, you know, we're so let's touch on that. You, you made what? a great point. So let's touch on that before we bring Jose in. Because, okay. you know, briefly, you talked about some of the challenges that people facing upon their release. You did 31 mm-hmm. years. You did 31 mm-hmm. years. And apparently, listening to what you just said, you held a number of jobs, a number of jobs. Yes, sir. Now, upon your release, when you're speaking to put together your resume, you're saying that there mm-hmm. are these gaps. There are these gaps mm-hmm. about, like, where you've been in your work history. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sir. That's exactly what I'm saying. And then, and and so, then closed doors. Uh-huh. doors on me because I, I said it closed a lot of doors on me because I didn't have a history of working out here to where I it was forced to be for me to say that I've been in prison and by me being in prison you know they're not prison friendly to hire anyone that's been in prison that's right so doing these are the facts you heard Tanya Mack mention the terms unbanked or underbanked and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people may know what that is but many people don't and so it was important for her to mention that because what it refers to is individuals who do not have access to traditional financial services like bank accounts or credit cards and loans, or they don't have access to any of these type of services. And so basically what you're saying, which is common sense and everybody knows, lack of access can have significant economic and social consequences, particularly for formerly incarcerated people. And we, and we know that. And so, and you find a lot of us. Go ahead, go ahead. You know, I would, I would like to say this part right here that that leads us back to a level to where what we know and what we we brought were brought up under um, to fall back into the prison system to commit crimes again because it's you know it, you let a person out of prison after so long and he doesn't have a way of survival. The first thing he's going to resort back to is how do I get some money to take care of myself as well as if I have kids and so on and so forth. And that's, that's, it's just like a, a, a complete turnaround. And, and, and sometimes it takes a lot to understand that what we had to go through while we were in the prison system is understand our, uh, our defective characters and so on and so forth to where we know when we have them telltale signs like, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to back to crime, even though how bad things may get for me. But this is the way that's the amazing. system is set up. Wow. I really love what you just did right there. So to to summarize it for everybody that's listening, just listening to you, you came from a very traumatic background. Mm-hmm. By the time you were 16 years old, you were charged in, as an adult with two homicides yeah. and four attempted murders. By the time you were 17 years old, you were shipped off to Pelican Bay. You spent mm-hmm. 31 years in prison, and you worked, damn it, the entire time you were in prison. Now yes, I did. you get out, and you can't even list any of those jobs that you list that you worked as 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 like it's for your work experience. You can't list mm-hmm. list them as a reference. There's no one to call. Uh-huh. No one's mm-hmm. gonna call and say, "Yeah, Mr. Forte worked for me." You don't mm-hmm. have any money to show for it to pay it off restitution or or court fees from from all mm-hmm. those jobs. Did you have any money saved up from 31 years of working? 
No, because they pay they pay us in prison uh, nickels and dimes, actually pennies. The, the type of work that we do inside the institution that it's, it's not even enough to survive on inside the prison system. So, so my point being, and we, and then I really got to bring Jose in. I, I want to make this point. You went in as a youth offender, a person with a fully a undeveloped, a fully undeveloped brain or mind, uneducated, um, uneducated, mm-hmm. dealt with more adverse experiences, adverse prison experiences. Somebody will call them H adverse prison experiences. Got traumatized mm-hmm. even more so in the prison system. Somehow, some mm-hmm. way, clawed your way, clawed your way, fought to rehabilitate yourself to a state mm-hmm. of emotional literacy that you can sit before a board of, of commissioners and mm-hmm. advocate for yourself to the point where you can finally get out of prison uh, of 31 yes. years off of what, a 45-to-life sentence? Yes, sir. 31 years off of a 45-to-life sentence. And then after all of that, after all of that, still nothing to show in way of going get 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 employment. Employment was and, and working inside of the prison was always more important, I'm sure, than you rehabilitating yeah. your mind and being in self help groups. Yes. Am I wrong? No, we, and you you're most definitely correct, sir, because if you if you refuse to work they will, you know, uh, write you a 115 or, or, or place you on C status or put you in the hole, you know. And you, you, even if you wanted to go to school or whatever, you know, w- w- what is applied to your counselor uh, is that, you know, they want you to work. They want you to do uh, something in a manner to where it's helping them in a, in a more format. And those that do go to school, are, are able to get to a point to get, it's almost like you got to fight your way to get to school to get education. Wow. That's deep. Thank you for that. I want you to stay on the line, Vic. I want to bring my man, the real Jay-Z. I want to bring the real Jay-Z in right now. <laughs> Jose Zapata, the one, the only, you know, I'm so excited to have you here. You like the first 10P alumni to actually be on Tales from the Plantation Nation. So I want everybody to give a warm welcome to my man, Jose Zapata. What up, Jose? What's going on, Sam? Oh, man, happy to have you here. Appreciate Thank that. Thank you for um, your patience. No, it's all good. It's all good. So, um, just re- it reminds me of when we sit in group and just have these, these conversations of things that we have to address, not only in there, but now we're talking about it out here, and I'm just grateful for the opportunity coming from you. What's up, Vic? Love, uh, love hey, to see y'all, yeah, Thank uh, you. Just uh, yeah, it's beautiful. But uh, it's, it's a heavy topic. A lot of things on the table. Some things we need to hear. Other things are, I guess, will come al- along with time. But uh, my story starts with I was 17 years old when I was charged with adult for first degree murder, attempt to murder, robbery, carjacking and gang-related activities. Um, going through the system as a minor, tried as an adult, was very difficult. Um, I would say this was like late 2000s, and for me, the journey was uh, a, a bit surprising. It was an eye-opener. By that time, mm-hmm. there was changes that were happening, but they were slow. And being that, I had to come to terms that Excuse me. Let, let me let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. When you say changes were happening, but it was slow, 
I need you like I like I spoke to Vic earlier. I may understand you, and Vic may understand you, but we also have an audience of people that have never walked in our shoes, who are really trying to understand what it's like dealing with the carceral system. And so, at times, I really need you to delineate and break it down so that someone who never walked in our shoes can understand what you're talking about. Okay, I get it. Um, when I say things were slow, there was advocates on our side. Not too many, but a few that were trying to change laws. And prison reform wasn't in a uh, big thing at the time. However, I was seeing uh, gradual change, like different little different little laws coming in effect. So my my experience is different from Vic's. Uh, from sitting down and talking to Vic in groups and uh, walking the yard with him. The same thing with Sam Brown. Um, I'm grateful um, that I got to meet both of them, glean wisdom and knowledge from both of them. And just to be surrounded by individuals who were in prison serving multiple life sentences and we were able to uh, basically come together and make something happen. But hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Did you just say it was a blessing to be surrounded by individuals who were serving multiple life sentences? <laughs> no. I said I said well, to be around in the like minded individuals because even though we were serving life, we knew deep in our hearts that something was going to change. And, and, and I'm not making light of anybody's situation, my own, Vic's, even yours, or anybody in prison right now. But there comes a point in time where we have to really dig with, deep within ourselves and see who we are. And for myself, it was uh, uh, when, I, when I went to uh, prison, I still had a messed up mentality because, like uh, Victor said, there was no hope. It was like, excuse my language, a fucking attitude. And even then, there was little to no uh, changes in law. SB 260 wasn't in effect. Um, SB 261 surely wasn't in effect. And all we had to do was either go to yard or stay in the cell. And for me, it was uh, a bit challenging due to uh, things that happened in prison, such as... uh, racial boundaries and stuff like that, which to me, I really never allowed to take an effect on me, but it was something that I, in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, what's really going on here? Do I play a role in the system or do I break free from the mentality that's going to keep me in here? And for me, so, so let me ask was, you that. Let me jump in with you before you, before you take that turn, because you're familiar with, you know, telling your story and, and walking this, walking people through this journey. So you move kind of fast. But the, the little nuances and the subtleties are so important. They're so important because your narrative is the currency. And yes. each one of those small each one of those small steps may seem small, but so much time and effort and, and heartache and headache went into learning to take those small steps that I don't want to just skip over them too fast. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, so go ahead. Go ahead. I, w- I want to ask you this. What was your mind state going into prison? When you, you say you were how old? Uh, 17. 17 years old. What, what was 17-year-old Jose Zapata like going into prison? What were you thinking? What were you told to expect? Well, at, at that time, I had a, a criminal gang mentality to uh, instill fear in other people. Um doesn't matter who they are or what, or, or what background they come from, especially other races. I was taught to basically make people respect you, always take it and never give it. And there's a lot of things that come with the lifestyle that basically just it's very destructive, distorted belief system that basically 
breed the ground that makes it fruitful for the prison system to, prison system to thrive. And for me, at that time, being young, I just fed into it. And I'm going to speak for myself, but I can see that a lot of young people read into it as well. And it's very heartbreaking because at the same time, it's like, what issues did I need to address then? And how was I how was to address them? They didn't have programs on level fours. They didn't have things that could have uh, readily assisted me to develop the mind state or the mentality to basically work on myself. So that mentality persisted for, for years. And uh, I just didn't really care. It was one of those things that lived live for the moment. Whatever comes my way, good or bad, I'm just there and it is what it is. Didn't care who I hurt, how I harmed them, as long as I felt good inside, which in reality was just a negative coping mechanism to truly um, decide how I truly felt deep inside. Thank you that for that, time, man. Yeah, thank yeah. you for that. I respect your honesty and your truth. And isn't that quite often the case, though, bro? I mean, you think of, think of all the time you didn't did in prison, all the time I didn't did in prison. Speaking for myself, and many of the people I know who have taken on the journey of doing this work, that is quite often the case. We adopt these strong personalities, these alter egos and everything, because we're really just trying to protect the hurt, vulnerable side that we don't know how to share or talk about or get healing for. Yes, true. It's so often the case. So I'm, you familiar with adverse childhood experiences? Yes. So, yes, we, we, we talked you... about this. Go ahead. <laughs> no, you go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say, that. this is the topics we discussed when we were in Tempe's. And for a lot of us, it was fairly new, but it was very um, eye-opening to basically understand um, how our decision-making was, was shaped and molded at a very young age by what we experienced in the household, um, whether it was emotional abuse, physical abuse, and uh directly or indirectly involved, but it's just, it, it was all opening to me because I was able to connect the dots that basically later on helped me to do what I need to do or address what I need to address within my life at the time and basically prepare myself for board. Thank you for that. And so that was very eloquent. Shout out to um to you for, for making it a point to really like um, learn the material, man, and not just read it, but like really instill it within yourself. Cause that that means a lot. And shout out to the Ten P program and everybody in Ten P. You know, I could be a little bit biased, but definitely <laughs> shout out. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. Sam Brown. Yes, sir. I, I would like to add on something that he uh, he spoke on pertaining to our our way of living behind those walls because a lot of people get the, the misconcept that of us being behind them walls and the rage and violence and the things that they hear, you know, through the media and so on and so forth. And some of these things, you know, I, I, I truly believe that, you know, we have to, you know, kind of address that the survival behind the wall as a child coming in the system as like he spoke on, you know, we're we're forced in some things to do because we don't have no other choice. 
right. you know, even with the level stages, what the prison yards are set up on with racial, you know, this table area, this area here, um, the guards have it to a point to where, you know, these are the areas, and then the inmates fall into that to where we become, you know, in the stages of race, race, race toward each other over just the simple fact of this is just what the program is inside the prison system. I don't like you and you don't like me. We stand on what we stand on, and we never had that level of, of understanding until we reached certain yards where it was just peace among everybody. You know, and I would I just wanted to address that because that is something that um, constantly is brought up in some of the stuff that I'm doing out here on the streets right now and explaining the stages of how we become so outrageously violent among each other as well as anything that comes in front of us that we feel that we're being treated the wrong way. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about. I'm glad that you jumped in and brought that up. I'm a, I want Jose to chime in on this too. That's kind of what we're talking about right now. To go inside of a prison system as a youth and never have the average childhood experiences or the emotional illiteracy that from which you suffer taken into consideration and then sit as you as an adult. And then once you walk in, like I'm speaking for myself, I also was a, a youth offender. I wasn't as young as y'all, though. I was 19. You know what I'm saying? He, he was 16. He was 17. I'm 19. And and when I walk up in there, I see a dude in Calipatria get stabbed like 60-something times. And it's like everybody was just watching and just watching and watching. And I'm like, oh, yeah, hell no. Nah. Not me. You know, that's the first thing you think. Not me. When I, then I, got, I went to New Orleans. I went to Orleans Parish Prison. I seen dudes get raped. Not me. I'm like, not me. You know, so that shit is traumatizing. And you right. go into this fight or flight response that don't ever go away. Your, your, your parasympathetic nervous, your sympathetic nervous system is activated. It's activated. You go into fight or flight response. And um, you don't never go back to the state of homeostasis the entire time that you're in prison. You're always on guard. Yeah. I got my boots on 24-7. Mm. <laughs> yeah. All right? And so they're further right. traumatizing you. So to have a person walk out um, with a modicum of sanity and ready to function and be a contributing member of society, that person should be celebrated. And mm. I would agree. I would agree. And, and I... I appreciate you for saying that, uh, Sam, because um, uh, I know Vic got out sometime last year or maybe two years ago, and you yourself about a year ago. I just got out like almost two months ago, and I know all of our journeys have been dif- different, and we all have achieved and attained certain goals. And for myself, it's, 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 it's a beautiful experience to be out, but the challenges that come with it, like transitioning not only physically but mentally, from in there to out here, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I try to stay with this community because we understand each other, but I also know there's a right. there's a there's a, a, a another community out here that embraces us and, and wants us to thrive, and that's why I love the work you do. I, I love hearing other brothers speak from experience because I know that one, I'm not alone, and two, um, the experience that we have. It's it's to be shared, and there's other people coming behind us. I believe there's brothers and Tempe's and other groups in there that are doing the work, and I hope that when whether new laws change or they get their parole date, that they're able to be here, whether it's on podcasts or whatever they be doing, and contribute because we all have something to share, 
and that that whole thing about uh, being celebrated is like, I feel you. Like, I can't say I did all my time, but I did the time. And even that, even then, sometimes don't uh, people don't appreciate you. But it's like I, I met the requirement, and now it's like an obstacle <laughs> after obstacle after obstacle. It's like, so what do you want from me now? Oh, you want five more years? Yeah, okay, I'll give you five years. And it's like, I'll stay clean for five years, but it's like, okay, you have to be clean seven years now. But that's neither here nor there. My thing is just like the celebration of, of beauty. And the I was hearing the sister talk, and I was hearing a little beat from Exceptional Me. And I was like, okay, I, I hear that. Because that's, that's like, every time I hear that, um, it, 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 it wakes something up inside of me because I truly believe we all have an exceptional version of ourselves. And when they were talking about the entrepreneurship, the people that have been in prison are most likely to be entrepreneurs. And these are the beautiful things that people neglect to see because I know there's so much potential in prison. People get another prison. And I'm just grateful for the opportunity to see people like you, uh, Brother Forte, uh, be successful because you guys came out before me and I know you guys are doing the work. And it's one of those things where it's like, even if even if I go down for whatever may be going on out here, maybe small, I know that there's brothers that are willing to answer the phone or do whatever they need to do to make sure that their brother or ten people is okay. And I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing. But uh, yeah, I would say uh, thank you for that on um, the whole thing of celebration. Right on. Thank you for that. And you know, we go up in those stoops. Those of us who do the work, and we come out different from when we went in. I mean, you can't come out the same no matter what. George Jackson said that. He said, you're going to come out the best version of yourself that you've ever been, or you're going to come out broken. And so we come out better sons, husbands, protectors, providers than when we went in. And it's our job to come out and share that with the youth, with your family, with the people in the hood that, that you know your actions have started a, a ripple effect that have led to somebody carrying on the torch that you lit or carried on so long ago. It's now our duty and obligation and our job to come back and try to correct some of that stuff. You know what I mean? And so that's what we're doing. And so it's an honor to be here with you too, Jose, and with you too, Brother Vic, because it's not just me. We all doing this work. We, we went up in there and we recognized something that we was applying our best, our best talents and interests Wrong, improperly, and now we're gonna pro- we're gonna apply it properly. So that's why we're here. Right. Save some lives. And so, um, with speaking of saving lives, last week, like I said, Devon and myself, uh, we were talking to Brother Eli, and so Eli was about to go in, and in the spirit of this conversation that we're having right now, like when I went in, when I hit when I hit the yard, basically, um. I had a couple of partners. They gave me a knife. They was like, you want a knife? I'm like, yep, I'll take a knife. So they gave me the knife. Then I had somebody else give me a book. Somebody else gave me some weed. Somebody else gave me some drink. And I was basically told, you know, kick back until it's a racial right. If it's a racial right, then you got to get involved. But other than that, if your number ain't called, just kick back and, you know, do you. Do you. Right? Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody told me find out what your triggers are, your cause of the factors. Nobody told me to do what Jose just said and connect the dots. Nobody mm. said, get educated, just streamline this process and do this to get out. 
Nobody told me any of those things. And so that's part of the reason why in the 10P program we created the Boys to Men Workshop to talk about those specific things that a person coming in should have to focus on so they can hurry up, change their life, and get out of prison. What was some mm-hmm. of the things y'all was told when you first hit the yard? Well, you know, I'll I, I say this to you that I was told that you don't, you know, excuse my language, that you don't tolerate no bullshit. You're, uh, you're part of a, a gang that's uh, highly respected on the levels of how dangerous, you know, we are. Um, you're going to learn how to make weapons. You're going to learn how to conceal weapons. You're going to learn everything pertaining to the lifestyle of what prison is, ins and outs from other races, even with the political part of it, politics of prison. Um, I was groomed well. And I was also told that when you reach a point in, in this position, you can you can run this. This will be yours. And I thrived on that. You know, I, I, I thrived on it, you know, because I was always looking for that you know, praise. I wanted that love and acceptance I never was able to receive at my home. And my right. homeboys became them. Right. And in prison, you know, we are categorized as, you know, groups, you know, different, you know, categories, bloods, crips, serranos, northerners, Chinamen, uh, whites, and so on and so forth. But then going to the prison system, we also are considered to be in a level of politics and, and being political about organizing and being able to run and have control over uh, situations behind the walls when they get out of control. And that is something that it, it, it kind of blew me away in my mind to see, you know, one or two guys or older guys that had this much power to move a whole yard, you know, and make it move right. the way they wanted. And we had to follow suit on what they told us to do, you know, matter, no matter what. Because you don't want to never be outcast or falling into position to where you would at weaker link, because then that's when you'd be uh, attacked, you know. And but that hey, was all. But isn't it? Isn't excuse me. It's just trip that you say that because now I'm about to flip the script. Like you're talking about peer pressure and not wanting to be the weaker link. But isn't it a trip when you also see that in the correctional staff? Exactly. Yes. Most definitely. You know, and I say isn't this to you that you know, also. I also experienced that too with, you know, the officers jumping on me, uh, beating me, you know, to a point, you know, because I did an act of violence on one of them. And at that point in time, you know, I I, I didn't have a a caring mode about anyone's feelings but mine. And that's what prison taught me because I grew up there. And that was the world Mm -hmm. of just like I always, you guys, I was Tarzan in in the jungles with all the animals trying to figure it out and, you know, find particular guys to learn certain things from. But I also had to understand that, you know, where I was at, how I got there, and then I reached a stage in my life of saying I didn't want to do this no more. And I had to go through a phase with that, you know, with my gang, with the individuals of, of that knew me, that where I built this reputation, and then I had to tear it down if I wanted to be ever free again because no longer, no, I didn't want to be no more monster. I didn't want to tear into people over the levels of what I suffered from as a child and take that anger out on them. So a lot of programs that was, you know, offered to us later on, um, I was, I was, I was gravitating to those things because I've seen these are things that helped me understand who and where and why I was the person that I was, you know what I mean? Because 
it's not easy talking to a man about um, you come from this background of people and 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 this is how we resolve our problems. This, we resolve it with, with violence. It's right. how it is. You saw the, what? No, it's, uh, it's you saw the people above you do. So I want right. to give Jose a chance to jump in here for a second real quick, Vic, because um, like I said, your story is so rich, man. I'm going to have to bring you back so we can talk more, both of you. But, Jose, I want you to tell me, and, and thank you for sharing that, Vic. I want you to tell uh, tell me, Jose, like, what what were you told when you walked in? Um, man, first and foremost, I want to say they told me a bunch of lies, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm using a little bit of humor. Because, I mean, at that time, I was willing to believe anything just to be accepted. Um, they told me, such as, always be vigilant, protect yourself no matter what. Don't let no one disrespect you. Get off first if you need to, especially if it's under the race. Um, same thing as uh, Victor has said, learn how to make weapons, learn how to make stash pots, learn how to um, make money the illegal way, whatever it may Whatever that meant, selling drugs, uh, making puno, because uh, you got to survive in there, stuff like that, right? And being young, it was easy to buy into all that, all them lies and ideas of, oh, this is me for the rest of my life. Um, dealing with the correction officers or the sheriffs, uh, it's sad to say, but even with themselves, like they have formed their own little cliques or gangs, whether people recognize it or not. Um, being that I was a gang member, I lived the gang member lifestyle, you could see like which ones were like ready to just do something because one did something to an inmate and the other three ready to right. jump. And as right. you spoke about it earlier, it's like peer pressure. And then you had two other ones that were on the on the line. They see something horrible happen to an inmate or a person, another human being, but they'll just turn a blind eye. And when they were asked by their superiors what had happened, they're like, oh, the inmate jumped on the officer, which they knew was not true. But at the same time, it's like a form of peer pressure because they had a choice right then and there to speak the truth or at least a version of the truth versus disagreeing with what the other officer said. And that just made me like consider a lot of things being in the system where it was like, okay, it's me against them, it's me against this other racist, it's me against the same race but different side. And it just had me develop a lot of false beliefs, opinions, and ideas that essentially when I started to do the work, I came to a cold, cold truth or eye-opening that it was nothing even like that. It was a lot of these things that either were projected upon me or I allowed external pressures to take uh, hold of my mind and allow them to shape me to who they wanted to be instead of me being who I was. Um, it's it's sad, but it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a reality in there. Thank you for that. It's something you just said, and, and Vic said earlier that I want to highlight before we move to our next segment real quick, but the fact of the matter is what we're doing here today on Tales from the Plantation Nation and, and what we do every single time is, like I said, we rehabilitate the image of people because prisoners are people. You know what I'm saying? And anybody that's capable of making a bad decision. Like Brian Stevens said, we're all so much more than our last worst decision. And so when you just spoke about the officers, you talked about them having gangs, you being able to spot which ones were sitting there lurking, waiting for something to happen so they could jump in, just like the other gang members you knew on the yard. You know, um, I worked in the program office at one point. You know what I mean? And it tripped me out. I mean, everything y'all said, I also learned. Making the knives, making the drinks. Stepping out, counting the whole yard, and I wanted to be the best at it. I began to excel at it too. Wanted leadership position and the negativity, everything. 
At one point, I got this job in the program office, and I began sitting there around the offices and everything. And as I'm around these officers, and I'm hearing them talk about the same stuff that's going on around, like that we talk about. They, they, they girls are cheating. They are alcoholics. They got financial problems. I'm like, damn, they got all the exact same stuff going on, you know. But they act like they're so much better, so much different than us. Or we act like we're so much different than them. And so for me, it began to transform my, all the things that I was told about about law enforcement, but also about people. And I stopped just using this blanket look like everybody white is bad, everybody black is bad, everybody Mexican is bad, everybody. I, keep, I stopped that shit because I didn't like people doing that to me. Because I hated when they used to say, you inmate, you inmate. And I'd be like, no, nah, that's that stupid motherfucker over there. I'm not like, that's a dead cat. <laughs> you feel me? I used to hate that shit, yeah. so I had to break myself out of it, too. And so I say that to say, Vic, Vic, describe yourself. Yeah. Vic, how tall are you? How tall are you? You know, what's your nationality? How much you weigh? Describe yourself. Uh, I'm 6'8". You know, I'm 390. Uh, right now I'm at 367, uh, 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 right? I'm a black man, um, very uh, looking at times, you know, uh, people misread me until they get to know me. Um, I have this, I've always been stereotyped, you know, and I've always been told that I have this certain kind of look that gives people the impression like I want to tear their face off when I'm just being me, you know, and I'm just uh, trying to really understand a lot of things that I do, you know, and why. You know, like I said to you before, Sam, there's many conversations that we have had, as well as a lot of my other brothers that, you know, um, I walked with in the the line of change. And, you know, it was was a struggle sometimes, Sam. You know, it was times that, you know, me and you would have to, you know, really go at it over words and how much you have may have needed me to come out and <laughs> right. tell my story to get other people involved. And, you know, I, I, I stepped out because, you know what I'm saying, there's a lot of times I would, you know, shelter myself. Because, you know, I've always been put in this leadership position just because of my size and a lot of things with my size got me in trouble as a young man where a lot of guys thought that I was older than <laughs> what I was. Now, right there, I want you to stop. Thank you for that. You said so much powerful stuff, man. It's resonating with so many people out there, so many guys who feel like they are pressured just because they, they're because of their size. Then you got so many guys who feel like they're pressured to excel and do more because they feel like they don't have the size. I mean, so right. to hear you say I was 6'8", 397, and I didn't always like my size, just that in and of itself is therapeutic and healing. So somebody who ain't never been to prison, they can relate to that or people who are in prison. And that's the point that that's why I asked you to describe, you know, your 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 anatomy so people can understand that you are like a big old giant that I'm talking to. But now Jose, describe yourself, please. Back then or today? <laughs> right now. <laughs> right now, okay. Uh oh, a lot of people wouldn't recognize me today, but today uh I'm 5'9. Um out of uh, light skin Hispanic, or uh, I weigh about 198, and I have facial hair. I have hair now, and I don't know. Um, some people say I always look angry, but it's not just an expression I've always had. I'm working on it, but at the end of the day, um, the reason I say why 
or back then was because back then I was I had the typical gang member look. That's what I wanted. A shaved head, tattoos, and baggy clothes, and that's what I wanted to present myself to the world. Today, I understand. Uh, speaking of myself, that presentation is is, is is everything, and first impressions. And one thing is to place myself in vulnerable situations, whether with law enforcement or gang members. Um, and I'm not trying to be that person anymore. So I try to do everything that I can to, to present myself in, the, in, a, in a better view. Thank you very much. And so my point for asking both of y'all that is so that I could really draw the juxtapose you all and draw the contrast for our listeners. Here we have Vic, black man, 6'8", 397 pounds. Here we have Jose, Hispanic man, 5'9", 198 pounds. Two total opposite ends of the spectrum, but their stories are so much alike. They got so much more in common than they probably would have ever imagined. And that's how it is all across the globe. And that's the point that we're trying to make and teach people coming up out these prisons is that we got all these superficial things separating us and causing us to, like, treat people like like they're less than. But in reality, people are people. Those officers we were just talking about, they were people. They got addictions and they got problems and they addict drugs and they commit crimes and run red lights. Just like anybody else, just like my buddy Aaron who ran a, a who got drunk and committed a vehicular homicide, got a life sentence. So we're just we're just talking to you all to humanize folks and appeal to to your humanity. That's what Tales from the Plantation Nation is about: is appealing to your humanity and getting you to evolve and think outside the box. So I really thank y'all for doing that for me. Right now we're gonna step into this next segment. It's called the artist that's going the hardest, and it's brought to you by Aim for the Heart. And Aim for the Heart is an organization that's rooted in emotional literacy, using artistry to reach people, touch people, and change lives. And they've been doing it for over 30 years inside schools, colleges, inside the prison systems also. So shout out to Aim for the Heart and Linda Steinberg. And the artist going the hardest this week is Big Keith, also known as Big Cat. And this song is called um, Out the Way. And so... Trying to get it and say I got the way. I got the vision for forever pay. I told my bro when he can hold me straight. I got the uncle that's about to go late. I ain't still praying straight or do say. I just go play for play all day. I'm just trying to get it and say I got the way. I'm trying to get it and say I got the way. I'm trying to get it and say I got the way. I got the vision for forever pay. I told my bro when he can hold me straight. I got the uncle that's about to go late. I ain't still praying straight or do say. I just go play for play all day. I'm just trying to get it and say I got the way. I'm trying to get it and say I got the way. I ain't gonna ride and grind every day. A little something to say Find a better way to make plays And in the end of the day be straight Wouldn't happen any other way 40 on the hip every day Drinking a trunk on the street One front of really killing for the pay They be like cash where you been at I've been on the grind nigga chasing this finish Trying to get it up so I can handle this finish Trying to make sure my team stay winning Cause of the pain I'ma keep on grinning Boy you know the real stay spinning I'ma keep you posted Ain't no telling what I'm about to get in I'm trying to get it and say I got the way. I got the vision for forever pay. I told my bro when he come home, he's straight. I got the uncle that's about to go late. I ain't still playing straight or do say. I just go play for play all day. I'm just trying to get it and say I got the way. I'm trying to get it and say I got the way. I'm trying to get it and say I got the way. I got the vision for forever pay. I told my bro when he come home, he's straight. I got the uncle that's about to go late. I just still playing straight or do say. I just go play for play. 
trying to make meals, so just making bills. I like to live like I like to live. Sacrifice, I had to give. Keep it concealed, that's just how it is. Separated, like from the real. Yeah, they be hating, but the fuck I don't give. I don't do much, I just be chasing real. Keeping it real, they chasing the bills. I come to you, I say trapping the wheels. Together we grew up, you know how it is. I wanted the riches, you wanted the hoes. You wanted the hunter, I wanted the rose. You wanted silver, I wanted gold. We wanted different, that's just how it goes. Truth in the matter, you already know. You wanted to blow, I wanted to grow. I'm trying to get it and stay out the way. I got the vision for forever pain. I told my bro when he come home, he's straight. I got the uncle that's about to go late. I didn't get playing straight or do say. I didn't go play for play all day. I'm just trying to get it and stay out the way. I'm trying to get it and stay out the way. I'm trying to get it and stay out the way. I got the vision for forever pain. I told my bro when he come home, he's straight. I got the uncle that's about to go late. I just get playing straight or do say. I just go play for play all day. I'm just trying to get it and stay out the way. I'm trying to get it and stay out the way. South Carolina. Woo, that's what's up. All for one. Shout out to Big Keith, Big Cat from the alleys of G Parkway, California, all the way to South Carolina. That's stay out the way. That's our artist going the hardest. And I really got a lot of love for him because that's somebody that's a hard working brother holding it down. And you heard him saying that song that when my brother come home, he's straight. When my brother come home, he's straight. And that's something that all the people inside the pen want to hear. When I come home, man, I'm straight. My folks going to look out for me. My folks got my back. They were still out there hustling, still out there grinding, still out there working. You know what I'm saying? They're going to keep my name alive. They're going to make sure I got a little something when I touch. That's what everybody dream of, but it don't be working out like that, though. You know, so shout out to those who actually who actually do make it happen for their folks. But the fact of the matter is when you come out, it's challenging, right? Mm. So we're going to talk about that real quick. I want y'all to just briefly – because we're coming to an end, I want y'all to talk about, for the, for the men that are in there listening, and even for the people, that who their family members, who are out here to receive them when they eventually come home, talk about some of the challenges. I want to give each one of you a chance. Talk about some of the challenges that you faced and that, you know, people can expect to face that no one told you about and how you overcame mm-hmm. them or, or overcoming them. Mm-hmm. Uh I I I I I want to address that you know real deep in one manner, man, because we're told one thing when we're getting ready to get released out of prison system, that's a bunch of lies. Um, through the through the uh, man, uh, case management there, that you know they fill out this paperwork and tell you that you know this is what you can apply for, this is what you can get, your ID, your social security, your birth certificate. As for me. It was hard because I came out during the COVID. The doors were closed. Mm. Promises from family is one of the biggest things that uh, can lead you into a, it can spin you in a, a circle. Because you know you never will figure your family will lie to you or tell you something that you know they don't mean. I ran mm-hmm. into that myself. Fortunate enough that I, you know, I, I lost my mother February 28th of this year. But my mother mm-hmm. was constantly. I condolences to you, Big Z. My mother, thank you. My mother would tell me all the time, you know, son, don't listen to what people tell you. 
You work on what you need to work on. You do what you need to do because you are your own self-security. You're your own level of basically getting yourself going. And as you did 31 years in prison, it may take you 31 years out here to get this out here. But the experience is really, uh, it hurts, man. Um, it really hurts. And I, I, I say that to you guys sincerely. For those that come out and think just because I'm, they, they think that because they're free, the word of freedom, no, it, it's not. It's not that. You know, um, it's a blessing to be out here. But also, when you go through transitional housing and a lot of different things with parole and so on and so forth, and I've been out here since 2020 of June 16th, been placed in an environment where uh, I don't even. I, I have my family has to come two hours take two hours for them to get to me all the way in San Bernardino because I have restrictions that I can't be in LA County. So these are different little challenges that I have to go through to understand how to survive out here because I never want to go back to prison. I never want to be right. under that form. Basically, uh, feeling helpless or, or, or looking at things in the terms of saying that I got to do this because everybody else is doing it. I love my freedom. Right. Cause exactly, I'm happy to hear you say that because there's somebody in the cell right now or somebody who's loved one in the cell right now saying that they would love to have your problems. That's right. You're right. So we but I'm, our saying, blessings, right? I'm saying to everyone that's coming in, and even for a lot of my brothers that's been done so well out here because I, I, I look at them and, and we looked at, you know, we're a reflection of each other. And, um, you know, I give it to them, you know, because it's not easy at all. It's never uh, a part of where you, you got it when you think and know in your mind or feel that you know what you're doing out here because this is a whole nother world. For me, after being gone for 31 years, I even tripped out in Walmart when the bells start ringing. I'm looking at people moving and almost had a panic. But mm. these are just stages of where, you know, adjusting and understanding how to apply yourself out here and also learning how to talk because at that's why the time of right. for so long uh sam we are adapt a way of you know thinking that you know everything has to come off aggressive or serious or or there are no planes you know what i mean and out here it's, it's different it's different and you have to humble yourself and you have to understand that you know if you love yourself the way you say you do that you're going to make it through any situation that comes your way that's my, my best way of explaining it out here. Thank you for that, Vic. Thank you very much. And um, Jose, for, yeah. same for you, man. Um, could you could you encapsulate briefly what has been like the biggest challenge for you since you've been home? How have you been dealing with it? And what would you say to you know the, the guys and, and the women that are in there listening right now, or those who have loved ones that are in there? Um, oh man, my advice would be, if you know you're getting out, start making plans for yourself, not for anybody else, but in the sense of like, start saving money, start doing things that are going to help you to at least have something when you get out. And it's one thing to theoretically think about it and it's another thing to practice. Because for myself, um, I learned not to be dependent on my family the last couple years I was in there. And, um, I don't know, the, the, the next thing is, Basically, don't put false expectations on yourself or anybody else because we're going to be disappointed. And I've gone through those uh, hardships in there and out here. And 
right now I'm just grateful um, that I'm surrounded by good people uh, in the transitional house that I'm at. I'm in contact with uh, Sam Brown or people that I know that have level head or on the right path that can aid me and guide me and assist me to something whatever's necessary. But um, just don't have those false expectations. Yes, have goals, have visions, have dreams. All those are necessary as well. But at the same time, it's like stepping from in there to out here. Like we have to at least have something concrete to be like, you know what? Increments, increments, increments. And, and I've been doing that. And I've been seeing a lot of um, uh, progress. Uh, like today, I got my driver's license. And I'm really grateful because now it gives me the opportunity to uh, drive to work. That's my next step. Um, there are many opportunities out here. Um, do what's in your heart. Um, my biggest struggle right now is I have a lot of people telling me what to do, such as I see this for you, I see that for you. And while I'm grateful for people's advice, I don't want to, personally, I don't want to place myself in a position where later on I feel certain way because I chose to listen to somebody else's advice rather than my own heart. And it's like the same thing in there. Sometimes we listen to other people's advice and we find ourselves in situations we don't want to be in versus listening to our conscience or to our hearts that we know between right and wrong. And with that, I just encourage people that are in there to basically, when you need help, reach out. And there's people out here, there's people in our family circle that are more than willing to aid us, family members. Um, it's, I'm very grateful for my family, my two sisters. I uh, appreciate them. They're part of my support system. They're uh, they're beautiful people, and I appreciate them because they assisted me from there to out here. And I apologize for all the stuff I put them through, and I'm just grateful they're still here by my side. That's what's up. That's big. Thank you for that. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you brought that up. We're going to start doing Still Rocking Wednesday. Like every third Wednesday or something, y'all, I'm going to do Still Rocking Wednesdays where I want everybody to call in that got a loved one that's in prison, you know what I'm saying, or somebody they're in a couple with. We're going to take it and, like, the Art LeBeau, we finna flip it. It's on steroids. It's now a Tales from the Plantation Nation, Still Rocking Wednesdays version. Sam Brown. You know what I'm saying? We're going to get it cracking up in here. So I want to start donating stuff. I mean, uh, donating, you know, songs and everything. And uh, we're going to get it cracking. So Still Rocking Wednesdays. Keep it in mind. Spread the word. You said it so eloquently, Jose, that I want to take us to our next clip. It's just about going within and using the time in prison to better yourself. Let's go, Brother Yusuf. I know how you feel, like you want to lay down and die. I brought you something. Yeah, but I don't need no more favors from you. There's nothing there. Put it in the water. You need something to get the monkey off your back. It's not cocaine, but it'll help some. Drink it slow. Stop it strong. your hype, huh? I can show you how to get out of prison. And there's no hype. Yeah, well, talk, Daddy. Yo, I'm listening. If this ain't bad, you got some more? That's the last fix I'm giving you. That's so what you give it to me for then, huh? Because you needed it. Because you couldn't hear me without it. I think I get one out of my face. 
I think you got more sense than any cat in this prison. Why the hell don't you use it? You can't bust out of here like they do in the movies. Because even if you get out, you're still in prison. Yeah, you ain't lying there. You go busting your fist against the stone wall. You're not using your brain. That's what the white man wants you to do. Look at you, putting all that poison in your head. Yeah, I think you've been in prison too long, my man, because everybody on the outside comes. Why? Why does everybody on the outside come? Because they don't want to walk around with a nappy head looking like... Looking you. like what? Like me? Like a nigger? Why don't you want to look like what you are? What makes you ashamed of being black? Let me tell you something. I'm not ashamed of being anything. Let it burn. Nigga, get your hands off of me. Go. Burn yourself. Pain yourself. Put all that poison in your hair, in your body, trying to be white. I don't hear all this shit. I thought you were smart. Are you just another one of those cats strutting down the avenue in your clown suit with all that mess on you? Looking like a monkey. The white man sees you and laughs. He laughs because he knows you ain't white. Man, who are you? No, the question is, who are you? You are lost in the darkness. But Elijah Muhammad has come to bring you into the light. Hmm? Elijah Muhammad can get you out of prison. Out of the prison of your mind. But maybe all you want is another fix. Thank you very much. Out of the prison of your mind. So thank you, everybody. Once again, this has been Tales from the Plantation Nation. I'm your host, Samuel Nathaniel Brown. Tune in and catch us every Wednesday, 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also tune in and catch our big brother show, you know what I'm saying, Abolition Today, with Brother Yusuf and Max Parthas, bringing you the latest and the greatest on our fight to end slavery all across the nation. That's every Sunday. At the same time, it's 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. Thank you for a great show today. Thank you to my guest, Victor Forte, and to my guest, Jose Zapata, for coming on and open up, opening up and sharing their personal testimonies in hopes that you all get something out of it that helps us all to grow and evolve in our shared humanity, because that's what it's about. So this has been Tales from the Plantation Nation. We look to hear, uh, see you next week when we have on our special guest, Chris Logsdon, Friday Jones and Camilla Moore, the chair of the California Reparations Task Force. See you then. Be safe. Chin up, chest out. One love. Tales from the Plantation Nation. I call a spade a spade. It's straight up slavery. So-called ended extended to the third degree. Involuntary servitude. I ain't with it. Sitting through a five with a ten and I did it. I'm in the thirteenth if real freedom exists. Reparations can't give back what I've missed. Home on parole just calculated the risk. So it's back to the block with them dimes and nicks. Recidivism. Trying to paralyze the energy, suppress the ambitions of a black man. Listen, I'm fed up. Still walk with my head up and lead by example. Something most men can't do. That prison labor? Wouldn't wish that on my worst neighbor. Oppression in the truest form results to poor behavior and it occurs on the norm. Swarm like them bees in the trees to find unity and power all affected. Let's build our community. Peace, peace. Yeah.
Slavery the 13th Amendment 96 crime bill, we mostly defendants Broken descendants, your folk reap the benefits To humanize a brother so we won't reach the census Three-fifths, is he part of the population? We pissed, we started an operation Supremacists will argue it's not a racist System while we massively incarcerated The facts would be hard to face it Try to practice the art of patience Black and brown, we always sanction. Uh, cheap labor need larger payments. Crack, crack era sentence with the lifers. It's opioid and now we got a crisis. Yeah. The American flag should be tagged with three marks of the sixes. Cause they used to hang us in the park by the fences. Don't care about the suffixes or prefixes. Slavery never was abolished, they remixed it. The proclamation was a prop for the clan. They freed us, but with no crops and no land. So they did free labor when they let us bleed in the cans. Cause we were sourced to crime when trying to feed the fam. Had brushes with the law, stay consistent. Been arrested 14 times, no conviction. Futurism came out swinging, sunny listen. And I represented myself, that boy different. My folks built this country, how we lazy. And we bring in all of the culture, cause we wavy. Me work for 33 cents, you must be crazy. The government wants some of my time, they got to pay me. Michelle Alexander with the new Jim Crow. Saw Abe's 13th and I was like, whoa. Black codes, they weren't codified. Involuntary servitude, I was victimized. So I became the sharecropper. Couldn't pay the fee, live a life of vagrancy. Couldn't pay the debt of a sharecropper. And now I'm in the penitentiary. I need that real emancipation. No slavery, don't exploit my situation. No progress without struggle like both. In November's ballot questions, thanks to FIFO. Hurt the bottom line of the corporations. No more making money off incarceration. I'm in the 13th with no hesitation. So I can talk about my mule and my reparations. Uncle's the father snatched out of the home. Uh, leaving mothers and children all alone. Taking collect calls over their telephones and for... Black people, such a familiar song, not a crack baby, but was born in the 80s. Reagan made a deal to keep my family having great needs. Seven uncles, most of them were doing time. All was a flash before my eyes, we don't say cheese. Got no manners, so most of my homies take pleas. Get released to keep their freedom, gotta pay fees. See the orange uniform is for the worst team. Coming for the bottom, play it off like an eight seed. Rules like potato salad, man, who made these? One out of every four in prison skin is like me. Decades after they implemented the third. Numb to the pain like we chugging Malibu Bay. Vive tu vida, tienes un destino, óyeme y coge de este consejo, tú eres libre desde tu creación, deja que tu existencia y tu presencia y tu tan amor y alumbre la tierra y ay, como nos vamos a elevar, no hay que sufrir y no hay que llorar, me enseña hacia adelante como un elefante, pa'lante en la lucha y echamos pa'lante, no es verdad si no es en libertad, no es verdad si no es en libertad. Before Christopher sailed the harbor, the story that he tells, these are tells of monsters. And even in those tales of his story, they don't never talk about how they came to conquer. What about the Olmecs? Wisdom of the Toltecs. Gold tip arrowheads to stretch them like a bow flex. Powers in the march, the artists in the protest. Jim Crow laws and you can hang them by the throat next. 13th Amendment, the dirt is extensive. Based on principles, some folks 
police suspension. Even in school systems, with school you to miss this, and this is how I move. How I move with the business. This is endless. 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 Tales from the. Hello, my name is. Tales from the Plantation Nation. 